This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. bit of intro music, a celebration of life, if you will, for the passing of the immortal Jeff Beck. When I first stumbled on the video of that performance many years ago, I was quite taken not only with uh, Jeff Beck's guitar work, but uh, Billy Gibbons on the guitar, and I think doing the vocals, doing uh, this, this memorable tune by Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16 Tons. Beck is great, his backup band is great, Billy Gibbons is great, and in the background, Tennessee Ernie Ford is great. If you take the time to watch the video, you'll note that when they were doing this, they had projected on the screen behind them a TV performance of the immortal Tennessee Ernie Ford performing his biggest hit and doing so with that bit of a smirk on his face that I always thought was pretty engaging. Yeah, if you're of a certain age, and and some of you are, you will no doubt join me in remembering uh, Ford with some fondness from television in the 60s. I recall one episode when he made an appearance on the I Love Lucy program as Lucy's cousin from Tennessee, oddly enough, I think it was. When I was a student at UC Davis, we're taking us back now to the 1970s, I was told that Tennessee Ernie Ford used to like to come to winters. I understood that he would enjoy dropping in at the Buckhorn when he was hunting somewhere near near Lake Berryess, I guess. And uh, boy, he would have been a fun guy to have sat down with and had a beer. But Jeff Beck, he left us last week, a legendary guitarist. I mean, my God, he joined the Yardbirds in 1965, replacing Eric Clapton. I guess they didn't get along very well, and he left the band, And but you know, they found another guitarist to replace him, Jimmy Page. His obituaries note that he became prominent as a member of the Yardbirds, where he used feedback, distortion, and eastern scales in innovative ways. It was said he was unable to sit still for long, influencing the birth of heavy metal with the blistering attack of the Jeff Beck group. It is said he could make his Fender Stratocaster squeal, bark, whisper, and growl. He was a mercurial figure. He preferred tinkering with cars to touring. And he disdained music industry conventions. After clashing with bandmates in the Yardbirds and leaving, he founded the Jeff Beck group with a then-unknown singer with the name of Rod Stewart. Noting the obituary I have in front of me, the group had two successful albums before it self-destructed, after which he embarked on a rather successful solo career. As a soloist, his first album was apparently his biggest hit, the platinum Blow by Blow. That afterwards his own records didn't top the charts was just fine with him, he said. I never made the big time, mercifully. Adding in 2018, when you look around and see who's made it huge, it's really a rotten place to be. Now, I should note that a week or two ago, or was it last week, Miss Merlin, we had kind of a lighthearted show. Yeah, it's pretty much lighthearted. Well, today we're going to do the opposite. <laughs> we have a pile of material 
to use on a weekly basis. And, you know, yours truly tries to push the negative stuff aside rather unsuccessfully, I would add. But at this point, the pile is too big. So today we're just going to have to weed through some of this stuff. And I guess we might be telegraphing that very fact with the fact that we're opening today's show with an obituary of sorts. So let's do a few more. A lot of people have left us lately. One guy we never got around to chronicling at all was Jerry Lee Lewis, who passed away last year. And no, in case you're confused, that was not Jerry Lewis, who passed away several years ago, but Jerry Lee Lewis, nicknamed The Killer, the Louisiana-born rock and roll pioneer who sang with a swaggering leer and hammered his piano with frenzied energy. You no doubt know him from his two biggest hits, Great Balls of Fire and Whole Lot of Shaking Going On. Evidently, Mr. Lewis was raised a Pentecostalist. Jimmy Swaggart is his cousin. And if you've ever watched Jimmy Swaggart on television, and dear listener, at least some point in your life, you should. You will come away not for one second doubting that he and Jerry Lee Lewis are cousins. And speaking of cousins, Jerry got into quite a bit of trouble back in the day when he married his own cousin. And that's not the worst of it. It was his third wife, and she was 13 years old. The Washington Post noted that Jerry Lee Lewis grew addicted to pills and alcohol. In 1976, he accidentally shot and injured his bass player during a drunken target practice incident with a 357 Magnum. That same year, he was arrested for waving a loaded gun outside of Elvis Presley's Graceland. His estranged fourth wife drowned in a swimming pool in 1982. The next year, his fifth wife died in their home under what's described as mysterious circumstances. Apparently, an investigative report later highlighted discrepancies between the police account and Lewis's version of events, but he was never charged. Jerry Lee Lewis had an explanation for the turbulence that followed him, saying, I have the devil in me. And, you know, maybe he did. And this does call to mind memories of when his cousin Jimmy Swagger got into trouble and then came before his parishioners crying and blubbering and saying, I've sinned. I think we would do well to spare you some of the sordid details involved in that little episode. And instead, move on to our third and final obituary. I've got like seven of them in front of me right now, but I'm just going to pick one that I, I did want to cite. And that would be someone who passed away last year, baseball great Gaylord Perry. Another guy who was a bit of a rule breaker. I think most of you are aware that if you're a pitcher in Major League Baseball... It is illegal for you to throw a spitball. I think they were legal back in the earliest days of baseball, like, you know, the 1900s, 1910s, maybe. Actually, I'm pretty sure they were illegal by 1910. Mr. Millen uh, verifies that that conforms with his memory as well, that, uh, that they apparently allowed the spitters, the pitchers that were the spitball pitchers, to continue in the major leagues. But if you were newly coming up, you weren't allowed to then become a spitball pitcher which certainly demonstrates the wisdom of Solomon. Anyway, when I was a boy, Gaylord Perry was a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants along with Juan Marichal, and yes, people were always guessing. Is he throwing the spitter? And you know, and what's a funny example of believing what people choose to believe, I remember being over at my friend Michael McGrath's house in high school when, when Perry was on the mound during a broadcast game, and I cracked a joke about him throwing spitters, Michael's sister looked with a serious face and said, they've never found it. And I, I, I'm not sure that that was true. 
but she certainly wanted to believe it. <laughs> we would note that he did publish a 1974 memoir, which was titled Me and the Spitter, in which he described how he did slick up the balls with saliva or Vaseline or fish line oil or other lubricants. Perry wrote, I tried everything on the old apple, but salt and pepper and chocolate sauce. What I think is very funny about this, this obituary relating to Gaylord Perry is that it's admitted that when he came up to the majors in 1962, he was described as mediocre at best. But then his San Francisco Giants teammate, Bob Shaw, taught him how to throw the spitter. And by 1966, he was a star. Perry pitched for eight teams over 22 seasons. He won 314 games, which is, which is amazing for you non-baseball fans. Th- that's a lot. And it's pretty undeniable that for all the furor over his doctoring the baseball, he had plenty of other non-spitter pitches in his arsenal, and curvy, including curves, sliders, sinkers, change-up, fork balls, and an outstanding fastball. And uh, according to the records, he was ejected from a game only once for throwing a spitter. I'm pretty sure Michael's sister wasn't, wasn't watching TV that day. Aww. What's even funnier about all of this is that Gaylord Perry would use the fear of the spitball to psych out batters. He would sometimes noticeably rub his uniform or cap only to throw a different pitch. Perry said his reputation was a great weapon of mine. They thought I did it all the time. All right, let's move into some follow-up. We did want to thank the person who called in a couple weeks ago to give us the thumbs up, NKDBS, for our coverage of um, the origins of COVID, or in this case, particularly the fact that we we hearken back to the time when Davis citizens rose up to make sure we did not have a biolab constructed on the outskirts of town. Now, we don't think that, you know, prevented Davis from becoming the Wuhan of America. More on that later. But there's lots of reasons why Davis didn't need a bio lab, and we're, we're glad that we stood along with a lot of others in opposing it. And we want to acknowledge the caller on last week's uh, program who gave us a thumbs up for our mentioning the problems with the Delta smelt, which the water interests in California seem to be doing their best to sweep under the rug. And we promise to do our best to, uh, to try and keep them from being able to get away with that. We refer to the work of Dan Bacher on this very topic, and we'll no doubt have Dan return to speak with us about it and other water-related issues. And we also mentioned a couple of weeks back, uh, rather mockingly, that we were, we were somewhat skeptical about this major revolution in Western civilization that's coming about through the development of chat GPT. This woman refers to it as chat BFD. But, you know, it just so happens we do have an, an AI expert or at least someone who got a PhD in computer science related to AI, who spoke with us a couple years ago about where things were headed, but boy, I don't think he saw the latest curves in the road, how AI is producing these chatbots that are supposedly changing the world. I know it's going to change the ability of anyone running an English lit class in any college in the country to trust the, uh, the product of any homework assignments, any writing homework assignments given to students. And by God, we need to consult with our English department expert, Dr. Andy Jones, about this very topic. When we first started doing this show 20 years ago, he, he, he informed us about the sad state of America's youth when it came to being able to compose sentences. 
We hope, we hope that he'll come and talk to us about this. We know that uh, Dr. Don Rose is keen to do so, and we, we will let him in the weeks to come. But preparatory to that, we gave him a homework assignment. He's very familiar with this program and how we regularly like to do one of our favorite segments, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we put it to him to try and develop a segment of good, bad, and the ugly as produced by chat GPT. Now let's just say this is a work in progress. We were fairly confident that we will not be replaced by a chat bot anytime soon. We would note, in fact, that Don was quite shocked when he asked ChatGPT to take a stab at the good and the bad and the ugly and noted that the response was resistive. And it was the first example of ChatGPT not giving him a requested answer. In fact, he likened it to the HAL 9000 computer in 2001 A Space Odyssey saying, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. This is what he asked them. Show me a true news story from 2021 in three different angles. The really good, the really bad, and the extremely ugly. To which the chatbot responded, I'm sorry, but as a language model, my knowledge cutoff is 2021. So I would not have access to the most recent news stories. Furthermore, it's important to remember that news can be subjective. And different people can have different perspectives on the same event. It is essential to approach news critically and consider multiple sources before forming an opinion. To which Don responded, open the pod bay door, Hal. Uh, No, actually he didn't. I should mention that the 2021 reference came from the fact that when he first asked it to come up with a contemporary news story, he was told, no, I can't come any further forward than 2021. Anyway, this was the previous prompt. Show me a very brief, pithy, and humorous, yet true news story from three different angles, the really good, the really bad, and the extremely ugly. Which isn't exactly our format, but close enough. Here's what this brilliant chatbot came up with. News story. A man in Florida was arrested for attempting to open a bank account using a stolen identity. But the real person whose identity was stolen was a fictional character from a TV show, The Really Good Angle. The man's plan was foiled by the unlikely hero of a TV show character. The moral of the story is, always be careful with your personal information, and remember, even a TV character's identity is sacred. And no, we don't know what chat GPT's been smoking. But it went on to say, the really bad angle is, this man's poor planning and execution resulted in him getting arrested. He should have probably chosen a less well-known fictional character instead of one that is easily recognizable. It went on. The extremely ugly angle. The man's idiocy has now become a laughingstock on the internet with memes and jokes circulating about him. He will forever be remembered as the guy who tried to scam a bank using a TV character's identity. We're concluding at this point that ChatGPT has problems with the humorous angle to all of this. So we tried to push it in that direction. Don asked, show me a news story from the past three years that has a whimsical offbeat angle and is very concise and then give a brief humorous commentary on that same story. And this was the result. In 2019, a cat in Russia was elected as the mayor of a small village. The cat named Barsik won the unofficial election with 90% of the vote. The village residents decided to elect Barsik as a way to raise awareness about the large number of stray cats in the area. This was what was described as 
humorous commentary. Looks like the cat's out of the bag, and now it's in charge of the whole village. I wonder if it will be implementing a nine lives policy or if it will just be catnapping on the job. Ouch! Well, it looks like that's what AI will do for you folks, at least preliminarily. Why don't we take the time to compare it to a real example of the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for The Dancing Queen. Yes, apparently Sweden's new government has proposed repealing regulations that require restaurants and nightclubs to obtain a permit to allow dancing. Who knew? said Justice Minister Gunnar Strummer, it's not reasonable for the state to regulate people's dance. And you know, Radio Parallax backs the Justice Minister on this 100%. And it was a bad week last week for the Republicans of Wyoming with the news that the representative of Wyoming, in this case, Jim Anderson, who I'm pretty sure is the guy that defeated Liz Cheney, is spearheading an effort of Republican lawmakers in Wyoming to phase out, to phase out electric vehicles. Citing the proud and valued history of fossil fuel production in Wyoming, the resolution would end the sale of electric vehicles in the state by 2035. Anderson says the resolution sends a message to progressive states. If you don't like our petroleum cars, well, we don't like your electric cars. Well, that's one possible message that they're sending out of Wyoming. Here's the other one. We are... And speaking of cuckoo Republicans, it was an ugly week last week for members of the House of Representatives who would like to breathe clean air. Yes, the Republicans have reversed a smoking ban inside the House of Representatives, which was instituted in 2007 by then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The ban allowed members to smoke despite a Washington, D.C. law that forbids indoor smoking, but only in their own offices. Opening up other areas of the Capitol to smoking is, quote, all about freedom, said Republican Troy Nehis, a representative from Texas, a Republican, of course, who in this case favors cigars. And now, unfortunately, you must take things even a little bit further south. Two weeks ago, we took a look at a piece that came from ProPublica and Vanity Fair, taking a look at the origins of COVID-19. In this case, they took a look at communications coming in and out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology to conclude that the Chinese authorities were alarmed about something that had gone haywire at the WIV. And while not constituting proof, it certainly pointed very strongly at the possibility that what happened in Wuhan was uh, directly related to the Institute being in Wuhan. And on today's show, we're going to take a 
look at, oddly enough, some other emails that went back and forth. In this case, in the United States in the early days of the pandemic. For this, we have to thank The Intercept, article by Jimmy Tobias. Starts out referring to how it was the scientific journal Nature published a paper on March 17th of 2020 titled The Proximal Origin of SARS-CoV-2. It was written by five renowned academic scientists, and it played an important early role in shaping the debate about a fiercely controversial topic, the origin of the virus that, of course, has killed millions since it emerged in Wuhan, China in late 2019. Did it spill from animals to humans in nature on a farm in a market, or did it leak from a lab like the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Drawing upon, quote, comparative analysis of genomic data, unquote, the paper's authors wrote that our analyses clearly show that SARS-CoV-2 is not a laboratory construct or a purposefully manipulated construct. On this very program, we reported on those findings in spring of 2020 and sided with the scientists saying, well, it looks as though this was a natural event. Well, at this point in time, we are very definitely not so sure. That might best be summarized by a quote in the middle of this article from Edward Holmes, who's a virologist at the University of Sydney. Holmes is one of the authors of that very paper. Before they sided with, uh, well, they sided in that paper with saying it doesn't look as though that's what happened, but the truth is they weren't quite so sure of that. There was some pretty suspicious uh, information in the, the viral genome that pointed toward the fact that it had been manipulated in a lab. Not necessarily purposely constructed, but altered by manipulation. I should try and explain that better in a minute. Before the paper came out, virologist Edward Holmes had replied, ever since this outbreak started, there have been suggestions that the virus escaped from the Wuhan lab, if only because of the coincidence of where the outbreak occurred and the location of the lab. I do a lot of work in China, and I can tell you that a lot of people there believe this, and they believe they are being lied to. Now, I don't think I'm virologist enough to be able to explain on the radio what it is they were looking at in the viral genome that raised their suspicions. Let us just note that there were little bits of genetic material that looked odd. It looked like they, like they didn't belong there, and which left the virologists scratching their head as to how it is they could have arisen naturally. It should be noted that before putting out a paper that said, no, we think this is a natural, uh, naturally occurring event, one of these notable scientists was 50-50 on the issue. Another was 60-40 in favor of lab accident. One of his colleagues, a virologist at the Scripps Institute, was 70-30 on it having it escaped from a lab. Now, it should be noted before they put out this paper, that these eminent scientists were batting back and forth the idea of how, how these anomalies could have arisen in the viral genome. And their speculation centered on serial passage, that's in quotes, or quote, repeated tissue culture passage, unquote. This is a practice in which a virus is evolved in a lab by repeatedly passing it through mice or other lab animals or cell cultures. In some cases, this technique involves passing virus through the bodies of mice that have been genetically altered to express certain human proteins. The technique can also make it possible for scientists to fairly rapidly select for more pathogenic variants of a virus in the laboratory. Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, wrote, 
I'd be interested in the proposal of accidental lab passage in animals, parentheses, which ones, question mark. And Anthony Fauci responded with serial passage in an ACE2 transgenetic mice. Now, this sets off alarm bells in my brain because it turns out that ACE2 receptors had something to do with how it was the SARS-CoV-2 virus was so bloody infectious. Francis Collins wrote back to Fauci saying, surely that wouldn't be done in a BSL-2 lab. Of course, he's referring in this case to biosafety level 2, which is not very stringent. UK virologist Jeremy Farrar's response to that was, Wild West. Apparently, a reference to lab practices in China or possibly to the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself. Not a lot of the controversy here refers to furin cleavage sites in the virus, and don't ask me to explain it because I don't know enough about it to be able to do so. But I can tell you from having read this article that the noted virologists have found that serial passages in animals have been proved to result in the appearance of furin cleavage sites in other viruses. At least that was the case of the H5N1 flu virus. I guess the upshot of all of this is that it, it certainly appears very credible that there was some monkey business mixed up in the genetics of this virus. And one thing seems for sure, we're not going to get straight answers out of the Chinese government. As of a few days ago, I think they were still saying that their, uh, their death toll was in single digits. And yet, wouldn't you know it, all the uh, intelligence data we have about China indicates that the crematoria are working overtime. Evidently, officials in Shanghai have admitted that up to 70% of that city's 26 million people have recently contracted COVID. And yes, if you look at satellite images, uh, they show round-the-clock crematoria activity. Funeral homes are overbooked. Apparently, the Washington Post was able to reach a funeral home receptionist in Chongqing who said, I worked here for six years and have never been this busy. The phone has basically not stopped ringing. And I'm looking at a photo from The Economist, the January 7th issue of this year, uh, which presumably shows some sort of medical facility in China. I guess it's a hospital. And uh, holy cow. It resembles, uh, you know, airports after Southwest canceled all their flights. Only in this case, there's hospital beds involved. This is raising issues of how it is we're going to conduct surveillance on people coming to and fro China. Boy, same issue as three years ago. And we pretty much dropped the ball then. The science and technology section of that issue of The Economist said that better surveillance, not restrictions on travel, is the way to deal with dangerous COVID variants, both old and new. Well, that may be, but we certainly don't recommend here at Radio Parallax that you plan a vacation in China anytime soon. We have to take a short break, so let's do so, and I think we could uh, do no better on this segment than to go out as we came in with Jeff Beck. We made mention at the top of the show of Beck's collaboration with Rod Stewart in the Jeff Beck group, and I think we should go out with my favorite example of that collaboration. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back in a minute. Yes, yes. 